This is Cynthia Ockley Barbuto with Grossman and Associates, and welcome to our podcast, Inside Divorce. I am here today with Chris Marquet, President of Investigative Services at Sunblock Systems. Chris previously ran Marquet International based in Wellesley for 12 years, and he also started Check Out Your Partner during this time. Before that, Chris was an investigator for the powerhouse Kroll Associates for nearly 20 years in New York and San Francisco, lastly opening up their Boston office. Chris joined Kroll right out of Dartmouth College in 1983. Welcome. Thank you, Cynthia. Great to be here. So tell me, how long have you been a private investigator? It's hard to believe, but it's now, I've just started my 35th year doing this. So I, yeah, I started right, right out of undergraduate school in 1983, went to New York City looking for a job. Mm-hmm. And I think I got two offers of jobs. This one sounded more interesting than the bond trader sure. job <laughs> <laughs> that I was other, also offered. So it was kind of fun starting out doing research in mm-hmm. investigative matters and kind of learning by doing. Okay. And did you ever have any background in law enforcement or anything like that? Right. So no is the answer. <laughs> I've worked with lots and lots of former FBI, former CIA, mm-hmm. former DEA, and lots of other alphabet agencies and got to work closely with these folks. So I, I learned a lot from former law enforcement folks or former prosecutors, but I never had that formal experience. And like I said, just kind of learned by doing over mm-hmm. the years. It was so fun. I never went back to grad school like like my original intention. What was your original intention? Well, I had this vague notion that I was going to go, maybe get a law degree. I had this fantasy of going back to get the joint MBA JD from Mm -hmm. uh, MIT, Harvard Law. But that was a fantasy never realized. (laughs) Well, I have to ask you because, of course, we all have this movie idea of the private investigator, right? The fedora, the trench coat, the sunglasses, telephoto lens on a camera hanging out a window at 10 stories. Is this just Hollywood, or is there any truth to that kind of of idea? It's funny. I think for all of my, these 35 years, Uh I have tried to get away from that image. (laughs) And in fact, you mentioned the the firm I work for, Kroll Associates, out of New York City. This firm sort of became the grandfather of the modern, professionalized Mm -hmm. investigative firms. You had a lot of people, former, you know, maybe a former homicide detective that would hang a shingle and they would go out and do whatever they did. They worked for insurance companies and that sort of thing. This firm generally wouldn't. They charged higher rates, but they worked for investment bankers. They worked for major Wall Street law firms doing complex litigation fact-finding. Even though we were known as, quote-unquote, Wall Street's private eye, as the Wall Street Journal put it, (laughs) we had to try to shed that trench coat concept because, you know, we're out there and people that I work with and the people that were hired at the firm wanted to portray a high level of professionalism right. in an industry that has, you know, historically, and at least in the old days, a little rough around the edges from a professional standpoint, cutting corners and doing things that may or may not be appropriate. So we tried to portray this image of being the absolute pinnacle of professionalism, doing everything the right way. We're not going to harass people. We're not going to invade privacy. We're not going to break privacy laws, et cetera, and how we did things. And so I learned, I grew up in this firm. I spent 20 years there. 
And I started in, in New York and went to San Francisco when we opened the first branch office, went back to New York, and then ultimately came to Boston to open the Boston office of Kroll. The image of the firm was important, and what I've always tried to portray in my own practice as my own professional, the same kind of high-level, high-degree of ethical conduct and working closely with lawyers generally mm -hmm. or the investment bankers and the finance people really required. I mean, if you were going to be brought in on a complex litigation matter, you really had to show that you knew what you were talking about. And, Absolutely. And project that professionalism. It makes perfect sense. And being an attorney, I can completely understand the different types of, I don't know, ideas people have about your profession and making sure that you can stay above it. Absolutely. You have become involved in matrimonial-related cases as well, correct? Yes. Historically, we stayed away from, my when I had my firm, stayed away from insurance claims st stuff and just because it tended to be lower dollar, not as significant projects mm -hmm. and you're beholden to the insurance company, which is, I would prefer working for the for counsel in a matter of import, of serious sure. import. But what started to happen is that I would get calls from, you know, my lawyer friends or lawyer clients or, or others saying, hey, my sister's kid's gone missing or my daughter's getting married and we want to know more, I want to know more about this fellow because I don't get very good vibes. And I tell them, well, you're, usually your tummy's right. So mm -hmm. your tummy can tell. And then also, of course, matrimonial disputes. You know, I think my husband's cheating. Of course, in a no-fault state like Massachusetts, is that probative? Is that question? And you're willing, you really want to spend the money to figure that out, to answer that question. You know, it, it's a matter of comfort level mm -hmm. for the, the ultimate, the client here. Okay. We can try to figure that out and we can do some surveillance. We can do that, you know, some research, whatever. And hopefully we find the answer done appropriately, but it gets expensive. You're talking about people on the streets, you know, hours and hours. It may be you're spending a whole week of teams of two doing 18 hour days following somebody without them knowing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with them knowing, you, you actually want to send the message doing it right, but you're not invading their privacy or, or trespassing on. Yeah. Which is a different strategy, but it costs because you're talking about a lot of man hours. Okay. Um, and so it's always going to come down to a cost benefit analysis. It's usually good money after bad and, you know, divorce situation, you know, sometimes the spouse that's your client isn't in control of all the finances and they're having, they're struggling. Yes. Uh, so it's difficult in some circumstances to engage extra experts. You know, you might need a, a, a financial investigator, a forensic accountant. You might need something, you know, other experts. Meanwhile, you're filing all kinds of pleadings and, and going through and making motions and serving depositions, et cetera. So it, it gets expensive, obviously. And at the end of the day, it's a, a cost-benefit analysis. If we can help, great. If the client really wants that kind of thing, sure, we can do it. So I was getting these calls you know, figure this out, you know, what's going on, what happened to the assets, those types of questions. So this comes back to check out your partner. Check part out your partner, yes. I decided, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago that, look, I'm getting enough of these requests to essentially hang a little shingle for a mini practice area mm -hmm. for family investigations broadly 
fine. So find the kid that's gone off the grid. We're worried about the kid. He's off in Colorado and, you know, we, he's got mental issues or check out the partner of my daughter's potential spouse or an elder woman who is now met somebody online and they want to know more they just get a little concerned you know is this guy just a gold digger here or what what's going on i mean i a few weird things have happened i really care for this person but i'm just getting something getting some queasy feeling here so i need to know more about that person are they representing themselves to be who they really are because um, you have to get to the bottom of it, you want to kind of I check guess check out. You got to check out your partner. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> check so, out your partner. So no, so it's a, it's a, essentially a due diligence. It's very difficult because we're talking about matters of the heart. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you, as in divorce, it's in divorce. As too. in divorce, it's, it's emotional. Um, it, can it can be charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, half the time, you end up being counselor. <laughs> I mean, not in the legal sense, but in the uh, in the therapeutic sense. Yeah. So I'm doing the same thing, uh, <laughs> and oftentimes surveillance isn't the answer, you know. And I'll mm-hmm. try to convince the client: Look, we really don't want to do this. This is just gonna burn time, burn money, you know, which could be better used. And other times it's warranted. So it really is, it's a case-by-case basis. So I started this check out your partner thing. To this day, I get, I get engaged on these family-type inquiries. Right. As you get clients coming in and coming to you for certain needs for focusing on, let's think of divorce for a moment, and somebody comes to you and says, look, I'm going through a divorce and I need to find the money. I think that there are substantial assets that are hidden and I need to find out, is my soon-to-be ex dissipating marital assets on an affair? And so what tools do you use and how do you structure that process to try to help get to the bottom of the information that they need? Yeah, and and that is the circumstance where it might be warranted to do some surveillance. Because first of all, is he just going off on junkins with his girlfriend and just spending the money wildly in a lifestyle that you're not exactly familiar with? Or maybe he set up, or he, I'm using the he, just often in that sort of setup, but not always. Some, not always. Some, some, not always, but try to learn what that person is doing. Or did they set up trust or entities or, you know, have business interests or investments in other areas that we don't know about, we, mm-hmm. our side, doesn't know about or not familiar with. I may have heard through third hand or through a child about something which you weren't aware, or maybe there's a bank relationship that you weren't aware about. So we try to identify these things. And again, there are some strict privacy issues that come into play, and we're not going to stretch those boundaries. We're going to do the right thing at council's direction. And that means you can't just go in and get people's bank account as a private in the old days, you know, or in the movies that that's what, you know, oh yeah, the bank, here it is. It's X dollars. Here's a, here's a brokerage account, blah, blah, blah. Just, it doesn't, work, it that doesn't work that way. Also, it's not Ray Donovan with a baseball bat going in <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and threatening to break the guy's legs. That doesn't happen either. So they are different though. That type of asset recovery or asset evaluation, it might require a forensic accountant that, mm-hmm. that we bring in. It might require, in almost all these cases, by the way, or oftentimes there's digital evidence on right. computers, on cell phones mm-hmm. that the lawyers will subpoena and sunblock, which is the current firm I uh, I am with, 
specializes in digital evidence and, and doing the analysis and trying to find hidden, if there are files or whatever that may have been deleted or the devices. metadata and things like yeah, that. Yeah, trying to figure out what there may be communications, maybe emails that might have been deleted, but that show, tra- you know, bank or other financial institution types of transfers and things. So these are all leads that they can go back to the lawyers and say, ah, we better subpoena this institution. Okay. JP Morgan Chase, there's an account there. Because oftentimes from the attorney's perspective, for example, when I'm confronted with a situation where and I have a client who believes that there are accounts in other states, other countries, even in this state, there's there's thousands of banks. I can't just start issuing subpoenas all over the place just for the heck of issuing subpoenas. Not only is it expensive, it's, it's probably nearly impossible to do. Yeah, and you, so a lot of the times what, what I need to find is, okay, I, I need some names. I need to know where to direct my discovery requests, where to direct my subpoenas. Right. And so this is... So this what is what we, we this is what we try to do. We're going to put somebody under a microscope. We're going to look at all the pub, what's out there in the, what I would describe as the public domain mm-hmm. versus public record. Public records, some of it, but the public domain also includes, but it includes what's out there on the web, you know, social media, maybe you learn things through friends and family members or other Uh hints of relationships with financial institutions. And it might be in a a DBA filing or it might be in in a mortgage filing or a lien or some kind. There may be documents that are out there that will hint and point to financial institutions that you then can go back and do your discovery. So that's hugely helpful. (laughs) My understanding, I think, is that it seems that you act as, when you're confronted with a case, kind of a contractor and bring in the subs with whom you have connections and who you know are specialized in particular fields and things like that to make sure that whatever's needed by the client is being fulfilled, at least to the best of the ability, as opposed to doing all of it yourself. And I imagine that you probably pick certain parts that you want to focus on directly that meets your specific skill set. Sure. So, I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years. Right. And depending on the case, I look at these different things as tools, fact-finding. Mm-hmm. I'm the general contractor on a fact-finding mission. So one tool might be the forensic accountant that's digging through the financial documents. Another tool might be the street investigator doing the surveillance. Another tool might be just the public records analysis and research online, that kind of thing. And another tool might be certainly the digital forensics piece. So it really depends on the project and what what we're trying to accomplish to gather that information. Maybe interviews. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm very good at doing interviews. So I might be, I'm going to have somebody who's going to do the digital forensics because I'm not the computer expert, (laughs) but my colleagues are. I'm not the CPA forensic accountant but I've got those that I can use sure. and, and bring in appropriate circumstances. And we pull all of this together really on behalf of the ultimate client here at, at counsel's direction, at their direction under the rubric of work product privilege. So that whatever- Which is very important. Which is, which is critical, I think. Yeah. Because you don't want whatever your experts are to be discoverable. So we're going to work at your direction. We're going we're gonna to agree on a scope of effort. And it might be a piece of forensic accounting. It might be some digital work. It might be getting somebody out there on the street. It might be doing the interviews. It might be doing the fact-finding research, public records, or all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> so we agree on that scope, and then we go out there. 
you know, oftentimes you're asked, so what are you going to find? Well, I, I don't know. We don't know what we're going to find until we get into it. Right. Sometimes it's hit or miss. Yeah, sometimes um, you're going to come back and say, look, sorry, we just, it just doesn't seem to be what you believe is out there. Right. The investigative fact-finding process is similar for other types of circumstances. So if, for example, you had a client, I know we're talking divorce, but you had a client that was buying a company and they had turned to you and asked, you know, we're, you know, we're doing the due diligence process. Part of that would be to examine the executives of this company that you're buying to make sure that they're reputable people. So again, it's a similar kind of process of putting somebody under a microscope, looking at them. And I like to go back in time to your college days. And the other thing is you got to look in the jurisdictions that are appropriate. Right. So if in the case of a divorce, and or maybe you're looking at renegotiating a settlement agreement that was 10 years ago, uh-huh. right? And now it's up for renegotiation because circumstances have changed, sure. or at least your client believes they've changed. Is there somebody living with the ex-spouse, for example, that, right. which I understand might be might grounds al- for a modification. Might, sure. might be grounds for a modification. So can we prove that? Can we right. show that? But you look in, you have to say, okay, well, now this ex-spouse was, uh, you know, they were here in Massachusetts, but now they're in Florida, and they also have a place up in Whistler, maybe. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. So we need to look in those jurisdictions that are logical. Right. Obviously, starting here in Massachusetts, but also, of course, let's say it's Palm Beach County, Florida, and up in Canada. And maybe other places. Maybe we learn things that there are other places that we need to look. And we'll try to maybe evaluate what what's the ongoing business activity or business concern. Mm-hmm. Maybe there, there's a new business that started up or new investment in a, a, a series of LLCs that own a bunch of real estate. You know, who knows? But those are the kinds of questions that, that might be asked that you might want to try to run down in those circumstances. I know that's a, just kind of a final question. I know you have a 35 years of experience and you must have a favorite story of some kind. Can you tell us a favorite story? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know favorite stories, but um, I mean, there's so many, uh, I've seen so many different circumstances. I've seen cases where, if we're talking purely in the divorce arena, where somebody was convinced that there was an affair, which wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And cases where somebody thinks there's an affair. I had a case where essentially the ultimate client here was a bit of a control freak. Uh-huh. And they were convinced the wife was running around. And they were looking at the wife's communications because he had access to all this stuff, even monitoring where the car was going. And then you start to get in, into the privacy issues that right. that may or may not be violated. Who actually owns the car? Is the car in her name only and you're in the process of, of divorce action or not or contemplating divorce? Again, these are legal questions that I'm not the lawyer, but the counsel will direct me. It's okay, they want to put a GPS in the car. Uh, yeah. Is it appropriate? Big question. And it's going to be a question in, a, in any case. Mm-hmm. Then what does it tell you? Okay, the car went here, the car went there, whatever. Maybe that tells you some things. <laughs> so I've had cases like that that were very interesting, uh, difficult, because in the, in the case of my control freak search, circumstance, <laughs> I thought that client was very overly aggressive in terms of what they were doing that they had done themselves. And I essentially, you know, in talking with the lawyer, warned about it. And they tried to get him under control, but let us do what we need to do. Of course, I'm getting phone calls every half an hour. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Right. Not helpful. But 
at the end, he <laughs> proved that he was right. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, but it was a lot of money spent doing things and spinning wheels. And whether or not that fact was even helpful, uh, maybe it's helpful in a settlement over child support, maybe, or in custody issues. I don't know. I'm going to be guided by counsel and do what's appropriate and uh, helpful, hopefully, in the case. But sometimes the client, as you know, Cynthia, this we got to do. I need to know this. Yeah. And so you uh, you do that, and sometimes it's the answer is what you don't want to hear, or, yeah. or sometimes it's it's exactly what you expected, but it, it's confirmation. Maybe it's peace of mind. I don't know, but these cases happen this way. Well, I have enjoyed talking about your business. I find it fascinating, and I think that our listeners will really enjoy getting a, a real world perspective of what a private investigator does and and what it really entails as opposed to, quite frankly, the Hollywood stuff. Right. And by the way, I don't carry a gun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to know. (laughs) I ended up shooting myself or something. So I have been speaking with Chris Marquet, a private investigator with Sunblock Systems, and check out your partner. Chris can be reached via phone at 617-733-3304 or email at cmarquet at sunblocksystems.com. Thank you, Chris, for your time. Cynthia, thank you very much. It's delightful. <laughs> thank you. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617 969 0069. Thank you for listening.